Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to The Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group. Welcome back to The Built Revolution, an episode two where we complete our conversation with Stephen Mulva, director of CII, on the transformation of the construction industry. Thanks for joining us and enjoy. Can we be a profit center in some of it? And then what parts of it do we want to leave to the experts? I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, the the final the final element that you, you referenced uh, was shrink for agility. Um, you know, agility is something that that our, our company has has been studying and understanding, and also seeing a need for increase dramatically in, in the business world. Uh, so well, I found it kind of an interesting thought. Uh, you don't you didn't just talk about agility as something to do. You, you talked about specifically shrinking. Uh, for agility, can you can you elaborate on that and what what you mean by that and how that how that really applies uh, to the uh, the conversation? Sure. So I think at a at a basic level, we're entirely too large. The scale at which we build and design is is entirely too large, and that stems from a couple things. But classically, engineers are trained in something called the six tenths factor, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with that from uh, <laughs> your time in school or not, but um, it, what it basically says is if you double the size of something, the cost doesn't double. It's The cost is raised to the six tenths power. Mm. So the way it works out is, you know, if you had a, a let's just say a, a refinery that um, pr- could produce 100,000 barrels a day, and you wanted to then make 200,000 barrels a day, the cost wouldn't go from $2 billion to $4 billion. It would go from $2 billion to $3.1 billion. Mm. And so what that causes engineers and designers to think about is like, well, um, if we just build this thing as big as we can build it, um, you know, we're, look, we're going we're gonna to save money. I mean, ultimately, this is going to be um, less expensive. Well, by doing that, you get an ever bigger facility. And uh, I worked for a big EPC firm. We got to the point where we had a gasoline fractionator that was going into uh, Saudi Arabia. It was 372 meters tall. It was so big and so heavy that there was no barge or transport vessel in the world that could move it. And so um, we actually commissioned to have a, a vessel built to move it from Germany to Saudi Arabia. And I asked the guys who were doing this, I said, you know, well, why don't you just build two of these things and daisy chain them together. And they said, oh, no, that would, you know, that would cost us a lot of money. And I said, more than, commissioning you a, know, a specialized view. <laughs> commissioning a new ship. And they were, they said, oh, probably, you know, they hadn't done that analysis. And yeah, probably. But uh, more than that, just, you know, nobody's ever done something 372 meters tall. You know, how cool is that going to be? And I thought, <laughs> you know, this isn't like the Eiffel Tower. It's not like people are going to, you know, fly into Saudi Arabia to go see this gasoline fractionation column. So the part that we're discounting there is what what most people in business would know as economy of scale, which is uh, can you just buy a lot more things that are, you know, repetitive? 
I mean, one of the things we definitely see this in heavy industrial construction is over 70% of the items that we put into a plant are specialty ordered. I mean, they're not even off the shelf or things in the standard catalog. They're, they're things that are based on, you know, minute calculations down to a tenth of a decimal point. Um, so it's, we want a 37.3 horsepower pump. Uh, and you say, well, why don't you just use the 40 horsepower pump? Well, no, we did a calculation and we want a 37.3 you know, horsepower pump. Um, and mm -hmm. so that kind of thing eliminates the ability to have economy of scale. But the other thing it limits is what we call economy of repetition. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, in a manufacturing environment, your productivity goes way up when you can do things in repetition. Mm -hmm. um, the fourth time you do anything, you're 40% more productive. So uh, think about the last time you moved into a new house, right? And the first time you mowed the lawn, uh, yeah. you were pretty slow. You didn't know where all the sprinklers were located. You didn't know, you know, the best way to <laughs> position or, or pattern to mow the yard. But by the fourth time you did it, you were 40% faster because uh, you'd experienced that a few times and, and you knew how to do it. Um, so by shrinking, we get more agile, we get more flexible, we get more options from the supply chain, especially if we can use sort of standard off-the-shelf components. Um, as we do that, all we're doing is just doing more of smaller units. Now there's an optimum there. Um, so the question on that 100,000 barrel a day facility is like, well, instead of doing one, do we do two at 50,000 each? Do we do 10 at 10,000 barrels each? Um, what's the right scale and um, that's one of the things and you know, all good research professors would would tell you that's why we need research um, <laughs> and so that's really why CI exists is to to figure out this vexing question so where is that inflection point or where do those lines cross between the six tenths factor economies of scale and economies of repetition um, but we are seeing different areas of this where you know shrinking fragility, building at a much smaller scale could actually yield uh, a lot more benefit and speed. Um, you know, I think I forgot what, who the author was. They said speed kills. And I, I think that's, mm. that's really appropriate for us because some of these mega projects are taking um, four and five years to yeah. do. And that's, and that's some of the public projects are taking upwards of 15 years. Uh, people can't even forecast uh, what the capacity is going to be needed. We have a new highway that's opening in Austin, and mm -hmm. um, the day that it opens, they've added a lane to the main north-south uh, highway in, in Austin. And uh, the day that it, it finally opens, there's going to be have a traffic jam on it. And, well, why is that? Well, because, you know, this project was contemplated originally 12 years ago, and yeah. the urban planners had no idea that the city was going to grow as fast as it did. And so the day that the expansion opens, you have a traffic jam, and there's going to be a lot of frustrated people with that. No, that's not, that is the uh, the quintessential example. I, I, I you know living in the, the Raleigh area, um, you know it seems like there's always orange barrels on the the, uh, the the various highways around town, and have been since I was in college in the '80s. And and we we still have traffic jams, um, you know. And that's that's the point is the the point of time between the planning and the actual deployment uh, is so long that you're you're almost guaranteed. Uh, to uh, to be under capacity at all times, can't catch up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you know, and in a commercial context, I mean, this is the thing: is uh, we actually had some CEOs that spoke at our annual conference, and they were saying, you know, you guys are taking so long with the capital projects that the best 
business analysts we have in our company, we, we can't think what the market condition is going to be like five years from now when your facility is actually done. So if you could just shrink the scale of it and you could be more agile and a lot faster, we could better align what we think the business climate is going to be like, you mm -hmm. know, two or three years from now, and you could fill that need. The other thing of, of shrinking for agility, agility is you know that the market forecast for four or five years from now is 100% wrong. There's no way that's going to be perfect. <laughs> it's either, yeah. right? It's either going to be above yeah. that or below that. Yep. So if you go to a smaller unit, you can just constantly reconfigure how many units you want to put out there. Um, right. Somebody actually recently asked the question, well, okay, well, what is the optimal size? And um, haven't spent a lot of time doing R&D on this, but I think the preliminary thought or hypothesis is that it might be 40%. So if the hmm. business analyst said, oh, we need a 100,000 barrel a day refinery, um, maybe you should think about 20,000 barrels. Uh, you might even think about building it in two trains of 20,000 each. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? Well, for one, you know that you can do it quickly. You also know that you can for sure sell 40% of whatever the business analyst said. Right. I mean, there's no way you're not gonna sell out that capacity. Mm -hmm. But while you're going through that process, um, either find the land or give yourself the flexibility that you could go to 80% or 120%, you know, because they're going to be low or high, uh, even 160%, and you could rapidly configure that. The other thing is you could actually finance those future expansions off of the cash flow you're getting from the first asset. Mm -hmm. um, when when we've done this in um, in repetitive building programs, and so, again, you think, you know, Walmarts and McDonald's and Costco's and this kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, or hotel chains. Yep. Um, the the economic advantage, the return on capital employed when you when you do it in that form is 57 to 80 percent better financial return because you're leveraging the returns off the early projects on the future ones, and um, it you know so shrinking for agility is is kind of a lot of those things kind of all rolled up into one. So essentially, that last point I think is, is a critical one. Uh, you really are almost converting uh, something that's been thought of as a one-off into a repetitive building opportunity by thinking that way. Right. Yeah. And in order to do that, that requires also a shift from you know project management thinking. I, I think especially in the United States, uh, all our management is focused on project management. So mm -hmm. the definition of project, I always tell my students, it's it means temporary and unique. <laughs> um, and, and so everything is a prototype, yeah. uh, everything is expensive. I mean, it's amazing that this stuff actually works, you know, the, um, because everything is of sort of a prototypical nature. But, um, if, if you actually get to shrinking fragility, then you start embracing, uh, program management and even enterprise management. And the question is what part of the built environment and the assets and the facilities spectrum should you do at a project level? Should you do at a program level? Should you do at the enterprise level? Um, if you think about risk, for example, um, if you try to manage risk, all risks at the project level doesn't work out, like geopolitical risk or uh, appropriation risk or tax risk. Um, these are kinds of issues that a project manager or project management team shouldn't have to deal with, mm. right? That should be handled at the business unit level, the program level, or the enterprise level. Um, something about, like, you know, is ABC plumbing actually going to come out here and, you know, 
do they have the skill sets necessary to put the plumbing in our new building? Uh, yeah, that's a risk that the project t- team should be taking on, but no. um, not geopolitical risk. And so by, you know, unbolting that and putting it at the right levels so that you can manage it properly is also part of this, you know, shrinking fragility. So as we, as we shift gear towards, towards more of the wrap up, uh, you know, you've really outlined uh, some fantastic ideas and, and, and a really exciting vision. But really, you know, on the scale of, of, of complexity or, or difficulty and change, you know, some, some of these are more towards the one on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being difficult and one being easy. Uh, but a lot of them are further up towards, towards that number 10 in terms of getting large groups of, of people across different organizations on the same page and mobilized, getting, getting other people maybe even to define uh, what's in their economic best interest differently. Just thinking of it in, the, in that context, what, what do you think is it going to take for the industry to really shift? And you know, what kind of a time frame are we talking here? Are we talking uh, something we can achieve or, or see big leaps and bounds in five to 10 years? Or is this something, this is, is this a, a 20 to 25 year program? Well, I hope it's faster than tw- twenty years. Um, <laughs> I'd like to see it see it happen while I'm still, you know, working and all that. But um, I, I would probably say, you know, it, it's like anything. There's some low hanging fruit on your scale of one to ten. Um, mm-hmm. What we've been doing is putting together groups of companies and uh, associations and and industry groups such as CII uh, to really tackle this from an industry perspective. We think we can get, you know, 80% of the benefit with 20% of tackling 20% of the issues. And that will be, you know, the low hanging fruit, uh, the mm-hmm. stuff that's closer to one on your scale than the 10. Right. Um, if we do that, uh, it's probably going to take us two to three years of research and development work and some pilot testing along the way. But I think we would come out of that and we could actually have some demonstration projects in a, in a five-year timetable that could actually show yes you know there are a lot of these concepts that i just talked about today uh do work Mm -hmm. um from there uh you know the next set of improvements uh becomes a little harder probably takes more investment maybe more time so you know this is a this is a continual journey if you look at it high tech or healthcare or automotive or aerospace you know they're still on their journey Mm -hmm. um the the beautiful part for those other industries is you know we can learn from them we call that tech transfer. You know, we can just take a look at how they did it, uh, emulate it to the conditions we find in our business, and uh, we can actually reduce the cycle time. So the transition it took in automotive, let's say, was 20 years. Um, but based on them and other industries, you know, I think we can get get a lot of the benefits out of this in a three to five to seven year time frame on those initial wins. And then you know, maybe 10 to 12 years on the, on the longer term. Well, I think that makes sense. And that's, that's, um, I, I agree. This is, this is something that, that we're kicking off that is to some degree the never ending you know, process, but I do think there's, there's big opportunity available, uh, in, in the next 10 years for sure. Now, I guess the, um, the, the final question, maybe the final thing to, to, to talk about is if, if I'm involved in the industry in some fashion, regardless of my role, What's what's the best way for for me to get involved and to understand how to how to interact with the content, be part of the process, uh, add, you know, add my creativity you know, and thoughts to the to the uh, to the dialogue and and start to help to carry the ball. 
Sure, that's a great question. Um, I, I think there's if if you go back to the the first Gulf War, you know mm-hmm. the the whole idea of Colin Powell and and uh, all the people who were around back then was to build as large of a coalition as you could. You know, get a real diverse crowd, get a large enough crowd to really move move the ball forward. Uh, that's what we're doing. I think the best way we've learned to do that is to find these leading edge companies, but mm-hmm. a lot of them, and also these industry groups um, also to move them forward. We think by doing that, and we've got several large, several industry groups that are involved in this. I think there's about eight to 10 of them right now. So uh, construction users, Roundtable, Lean Construction Institute, CII, um, we're talking to AGC, we're talking, you know, some other associations as well, um, even internationally. Uh, It stands that uh, whoever's listening to the podcast probably works for a, a company that's somehow involved with one or more of these organizations. And so the ability to input and participate through that is going to be there, even if their company is not a direct investor or contributor into uh, this development. Mm. So I think w- we want to do that. We want to have as uh, a big of an umbrella and, and collaborate uh, with as many people as we can. On the other hand, uh, you, you can't actually have 20 million people in the tent or you, you won't you won't make any progress, right? So um, where is the right size of that? If you make it too small, you may end up with competing platforms. And I think ultimately that that's kind of destructive. Um, yep. If there were one or two uh, platforms, and the whole idea of this is once we build out the platform to give it away, um, that, that if you do that, then that really reduces the incentive for somebody to come up with a comp- competing platform because, you know, right. how do you compete with something that's good that's also free? Um, but uh, that's that's really it. And I think um, if if we're able to do that and, and get a lot of people rallying behind it, and that looks like exactly what's happening now, um, I think we're going to be successful. It's, it's a huge thing to take on for sure. Uh, some of the ideas I talked about today and you talked about are – uh, you could say they're maybe a little utopian, um, but I also think it's it, it's sort of that issue where well, even if we only get a third or a half of done what what we've just talked about, uh, we're still way further ahead than we are today. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. I mean, the, the construction industry in the U.S. is is typically the largest non-governmental or, uh, piece of the of the GDP. Uh, it, when taken collectively, it's usually between eight and nine percent of GDP. And to your point earlier, it has a huge impact uh, on almost all of the other f- sectors in the GDP uh, because we have to have facilities uh, in order for all those other sectors to work, whether it's uh, office building, a medical office building, a clinic, a hospital, a refinery, a bridge. Uh, we've got to have structures and facilities built. Um, and so it's uh, to your point, if, even if we only get halfway there, uh, we're we have a huge impact you know, on the industry and on, on the society as a whole. Uh, so this, this is uh, extremely exciting for uh, for myself and, and, and my colleagues. And uh, I was lucky enough to attend you know one of the workshops this summer in Detroit. And that that just just the uh, the conversation that day kind of propelled me through the next month, <laughs> you know, by itself. So it's, I'm very excited about the the uh, about what, what you're articulating and and all the different groups that are getting involved. So. Um, what else would you like to, to articulate or to, to comment before before we wrap up? Well, no, I think the point you just made is is spot on. I mean that that we we got to stop being the bottleneck for uh, all the other industries to advance. And just recently, um, 
had somebody who's uh, retired from the general, retired general from the military, come and talk about to me about how fragile our nation's electrical grid is. That you know, there's really three grids. There's mm-hmm. west of the Mississippi, east of the Mississippi, and then Texas. You know, Texas uh, living here. You know, Texas always wants to retain its independence at some level. <laughs> um, so, and and basically, he he said, you know, every time we have a, a natural disaster, every time we have a fire, every time something happens, we basically put back in place, you know, this infrastructure that, by design, you know, the electrical grid is a hundred years old. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it goes all the way back to the days of you know Thomas Edison. Yeah. But yet, we know the future for electrical is uh, distributed, and so we have these business leaders and these leading minds like you know Bill Gates. They say, you know. The, the modern economy is so much predicated on the internet and to have the internet function properly you need a, a proper electrical grid that doesn't brown out or black out or is fragile you know a, a tree falls in a windstorm and you know knocks out you know half of alabama or something mm-hmm. um, you can't have that and sustain a modern economy and so this is again where you know it's incumbent upon people in the capital project space to think about not just a better way to do, uh, you know, electrical generation and distribution and transmission projects, but really think about, you know, what what is the next generation of these facilities really look like? How does that support, you know, the wider economy? And so our role in this is really super critical. Um, I always say we're the basis of civilization because, you know, without capital projects people, you don't have I mean, you don't have any facilities to do transportation. I mean, how are you going to have clean water or education or anything else? And um, But it's also, that means we have a large responsibility to the rest of the planet, to people, to companies to continually improve and get a whole lot better. Um, they're depending on us to do that. And so uh, I'm eager to work on the problem. I know there's a lot of people like you and, and uh, companies and groups that are eager to work on it. So uh, it's going to be a fun journey. Outstanding. Well, Stephen, as, as always, it's a pleasure talking with you, and I, I really appreciate you being here uh, for the beginning of the Built Revolution podcast. And uh, we'll look forward to, to many more conversations going forward and, and lots of progress. Sure. I'm really happy to, to be here today and, and to talk with you, Clark, again. Uh, it's an exciting topic, and um, I'm sure we'll continue the conversation from here. Thank you very much. That was uh, Built Revolution podcast with Stephen Mulva, Director of the Construction Industry Institute. Tune in next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution Pod, brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.